Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another weekend of our stay-at-home Sunday morning podcast. We pray that you are safe this week and that you are staying connected to the Lord and that you continue to track with us as we go through the book of Judges together, learning what we can from our ancestors in the faith who found it a real struggle to stay faithful to God as they lived in the the land that he had promised to them, and learning what we can from the judges who were raised up as deliverers, uh, deliverers for Israel in that day, but also deliverers that today point us to the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, we wrapped up the story of the judge Deborah, and the last line of that story in the in the scriptural record is that the land had peace for 40 years. And as we turn to the next part of the story, does anyone care to venture a guess at what happens next? As is the case so often in the book of Judges, when things are going well for God's people, they tend to forget their God. This story is told time and again throughout Scripture, and it's oftentimes a story that's being told even today about God's people. When things are going well, it's so easy for us to forget God. I was thinking about that principle, and it just made me wonder this week, what percentage of prayers that are being offered up to heaven throughout our county, throughout Cowlitz County, what percentage of those prayers are along the lines of asking for things like comfort and security and safety? You know, the, the story of Scripture testifies that one of the most dangerous places for God's people to be in terms of their ability to stay faithful to him. One of the most dangerous places to be is a place of comfort and safety and security. Which begs the question, are these really the things that we should be seeking after? Should these kinds of things be the goal of our life or our aspirations? This morning I was listening on a Zoom interview with an old missionary. Uh, YWAM has been, Youth with a Mission has been putting out this 30 days of vision in April and invited people to tune in and listen to interviews of just a number of, of faithful missionary leaders throughout their organization. And the guest for today's uh, interview was a, a man who spent decades ministering to the Slavic people behind the Iron Curtain, uh, smuggling Bibles into uh, communist countries uh, throughout the 70s and 80s and, and 90s until communism fell. And um, he, he talked about how there was a saying among missionaries in those days that, that there's no such thing as a closed country, that, that God can get us into any country, uh, that he just might not get you out of the countries that he's gotten into. Anyhow, in the, in the interview, there was this question brought up, what can the church in America learn from the persecuted global church? And uh, this missionary kind of dodged the question, just said, hey, I'd have to write a whole entire book about it. Uh, but then he made this really interesting observation. He said that he believed it was more difficult to follow Jesus in a free, comfortable, and safe society. It was more difficult to be faithful to Jesus in that kind of a society than it is in a hostile country. And he pointed out how there's just a real difference for us when, it, you know, it's one thing for the government to assault you in your relationship with Jesus. It's another thing entirely for you to have to deal with how your own sense of freedoms or your own fleshly appetites or, or your own uh, sense of self-entitlement, how those things can assault your relationship with Jesus. And when that assault on our relationship with Jesus comes from an external force that's imposed on us from the outside, it's a different kind of assault when uh, the assault on our relationship with Jesus is coming from those things that are dwelling within our hearts. So what are the things 
that we should be praying for? Uh, how is it that we should aspire to live if faithfulness to God is uh, of the utmost importance to us? Hopefully the story we read today will give us some insight into that. We'll be picking up at the beginning of Judges chapter 6. It says in 6 verse 1, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the other eastern people invaded the country. And they camped on the land, they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkey. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, and it was impossible to count them on their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it, and Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. What we've just read here is the most detailed account of the desperate conditions that Israel finds themselves in when they forget the Lord their God and turn away from Him. It's almost as if the author is making a point of saying that this time things had gotten so bad, so bad, that uh, these were the most difficult situation that people had lived in for them to finally turn to the Lord for help. Which should have us thinking a little bit. What motivates you to turn to the Lord for help? How bad do things have to get in your life before you will look to God uh, for your everything? Another question might be, can good times inspire us to turn to the Lord? Is it possible to be motivated not just by uh, discomfort and fear when we're crying out to God, but is it it possible to cry out to Him in gratitude and um, to cry out to Him in the midst of Him just showing Himself faithful over and over again? I would like to think that it is, because it would mean I could avoid a lot of pain in life, but I don't know that uh, Scripture paints a great picture of that. So anyhow, we'll keep reading. Verse 7, it says, When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. The prophet said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. This prophet that God sent is pointing out to the Lord's people that God has done it all. He's been faithful. He's given them a land. He's defended them at every turn. And yet, how did God's people respond to that? And the reality is, he says, you didn't listen to me. God's people didn't listen to him. They didn't obey him. You might look back over the course of your own life and reflect on the faithfulness of God. And although you might not feel that at every turn he's delivered you, I'm sure that every one of us who is walking with Jesus can find evidence of his faithfulness to us. And so today, are we people who are committed to walking with him, to listening to him, uh, because he is a faithful God and because he's worth listening to, or has uh, his faithfulness become a curse for us as we uh, live uh, in a comfortable, uh, relatively comfortable life and a relatively safe life? And if you are listening to God, I wonder what he's saying to you in this season. If someone was to ask you the question, what is God speaking to you? Do you have an answer for that? And if you don't, why don't you? (laughs) If we believe that God speaks, and Scripture seems to teach that He does, uh, are we taking time to really 
listen to him? Or are we walking in the ways of our Israelite ancestors who, who for a period of time weren't listening to the Lord their God? Anyhow, continuing on in verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Is Gideon listening here? The angel says to him, The Lord is with you. And Gideon's reply is, No, he's abandoned us. And we know that on the one hand, what God says is true, right? When the angel speaks the word, the Lord is with you, we say, yes, that's true. God is with me. If I'm offering that as a phrase of comfort to someone who's suffering, you know, in current present times, the Lord is with you. We know that on the one hand, that's true. The core reality of our world, the core reality of our humanity is based off of the truth of what God says and what scripture claims, not maybe what we're experiencing. Yet at the same time, I think many of us can understand where Gideon's coming from here. Well, if God is with us, why am I hiding here in this wine press, threshing out a little bit of grain, just hoping that the Midianites aren't going to find me and take it all? If God is really with me, why are the Midianites constantly overcoming us? And I think for many of us, we live in this place of difficulty where we have to reconcile the truth of Scripture and the truth of what God says which we might even in our own minds say, yes, that is the core truth of our reality, and yet there are many other things happening as well in our lives that that might uh, proclaim otherwise, might say, well, God isn't really faithful or he isn't really with us. Anyhow, verse 14, it says, The Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The first thing I notice in that is that God doesn't answer Gideon's question. Uh, Gideon <laughs> Gideon says to God, oh, if you're really with us, why are things going so poorly? And God doesn't say, well, uh, it's going so poorly, fill in the blank, whatever reasons God might have. He doesn't answer his question, which is a good reminder for me that God doesn't necessarily always feel the need to justify himself or his motives to us or, or to need to defend himself to humanity. I think sometimes we just don't understand and we're searching for answers that we may not ever have satisfactory answers to on this side of of life, and yet we're still called to trust him. We're still called to listen to what he says and to believe him. God doesn't let Gideon off the hook just because Gideon can't understand how can God be with me when my life's not going well. He still says to him, go in the strength you have, save Israel out of Midian's hand. I'm still sending you. Despite your doubts, despite your confusion, I still have a plan for your life and I'm still sending you. Another thing that I'm reminded of this story is perhaps a reason that God isn't answering these questions of Gideon directly is the fact that God has already answered these questions. We have the prophet speaking just before this in verse 10 saying, hey, you haven't listened to me. I've done all this for you and you haven't listened to me. And Gideon says, well, if you're with us, why aren't things going well for us? (laughs) Well, things tend to not go well for people who don't listen to God. You don't want to live the way that God has designed for humanity to live. You can expect trouble. You can expect trouble even when you're doing everything right, all the more 
uh, we make trouble for ourselves when we depart from uh, the truth of who God is and how he's created us to live in relationship with him. Um, and it would seem that uh, God, although he is patient and kind, he's not always quick to just give us that answer for the 50th time. Uh, there's times when we just have to accept that we don't need a special word from the Lord to live in obedience to the things that he has already said, or to understand the things that he has already revealed. I should not need a special word from the Lord to, you know, go out from my house in the in the day uh, with, the, with the conviction to love my neighbor. Uh, that's been written in Scripture— <laughs> It's been repeated throughout history, through God and his church, and I don't need a special word from the Lord to live in obedience to that. Anyhow, Gideon says, pardon me, my Lord. This is verse 15. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered him, and he says, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Question is, how can I overcome? I'm the weakest, I'm the lowest. And God says, I'm going to be with you. That's how you're going to overcome. I will be with you. I suppose in there, God could have said too, like, this is why I picked you. Uh, He said that through the prophets to the nation of Israel at one point. I I chose you because you were the least of the nations, you were the least of the people. Uh, This is totally my style. I choose the weak things, the simple things, the foolish things, as we've talked about. Uh, before in this series. Uh, God is not out there looking for a five-star recruit. He's looking for a willing recruit, someone who will believe him, trust him, and someone who will listen to him. Gideon replies to God, he says in verse 17, if now I've found favor in your eyes, then give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. I don't know about you, but I'm imagining this scene rolling out. This angel shows up, is talking to Gideon in the wine press. I have never had an experience in my life like this. Uh, I would love to have an experience in my life like this, where the angel of the Lord would show up and I could converse with God face to face. And yet, even in all of this, Gideon is asking for a sign, for a confirmation. God, is this really you speaking to me? Please don't go away until I come back. I'm going to bring an offering and I will set it before you. And this brings up a couple of interesting things. One is that Gideon, in talking to this supernatural angel being, doesn't initially just assume that that's God. There's an assumption this could be God. There's an assumption this could be some other kind of supernatural being. And and I think that just... that just points out the fact that in the ancient world, for the authors of Scripture, there was an assumption that there was almost an uncountable number of other gods, of other spirits, of other supernatural beings. And forgetting, he says, how do I know that you really are who you say you are? I'm going to go and bring an offering before you. So Gideon went inside, he prepared a young goat, from an ephah of the flour, he made bread without yeast, and then putting the meat in a basket, it's broth in a pot, he brought them out, and then he offered them to him, him being the Lord, under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and place them on the rock and pour out the broth. So Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that he had in his hand, and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. 
In other words, he's saying, oh no, what's going to happen to me? I've seen the Lord face to face. So on the one hand, he's getting what he was asking for. He's getting proof that this really is the Lord. And yet on the other hand, he's terrified, which hints at a a common misconception that has haunted humanity perhaps ever since the fall, Uh, a misconception about the the divine, about God. And that's that in the imagination of humanity, there, there lurks this idea that a divine being that God cannot necessarily be trusted, that uh, this God who reigns supreme over the universe is looking for, just looking for an excuse to vaporize a few humans. And of course, scripture points out that nothing could be further from the truth. The God revealed in our Bible is a God who is looking for excuses not to vaporize, but excuses to save and excuses to reconcile, looking for any reason to, uh, to save humanity and, and to reconcile them to himself. The Lord says to Gideon, peace, don't be afraid, you're not going to die. And so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, the Lord is peace. And to this day, that altar stands in Oprah of the Abiyas writes. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, take a second bull from your father's herd, one that's seven years old, and tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it and then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of these heights. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon and ten of his servants do as the Lord told him. But they did it at night because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople. So here's Gideon being obedient in secret. He's got ten of his servants, which he talks about being the least of the least of the least. I mean, I don't know how you're 10 servants and you're the least of the least of the least. I consider myself somewhat privileged and never had a servant in my life. But anyhow, verse 28, in the morning, the people get up and they see that there's Baal's altar demolished and the Asherah pole is beside it and it's been cut down and this second bull has been sacrificed on a newly built altar. And so they're asking each other, well, who did this? And they carefully investigate, they ask around town and everyone finds out, well, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And so the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and he's cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Here we see how dedicated this tribe in Israel is to their false gods. Someone has poked their false god a little bit, someone's broken down the altar of their false god, and they are ready to kill someone. This Gideon has insulted our God. He's not living by our religious code. He deserves to die. Verse 31, Joash, Gideon's father, replies to the hostile crowd, and he says, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save Baal? Whoever fights for Baal will be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And then the story ends saying, so because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbabel that day, which is to say, let Baal contend with him. I love this part of the story. This is a part that's often skipped uh, in the telling of the story of Gideon, but there's so much wisdom in Joash's reply. You know, here these people are all upset because their God has been insulted, and and he says, hey, if God, if Baal really is a God, can he defend himself? You know, whoever is going to take up arms and fight on Baal's behalf is going to find death for themselves, and the people are convinced. It's like they say, oh yeah, I guess that's true. If Baal truly is a God, he he should be able to fight his own battles, and what kind of a God is it worth worshiping if, if he can't fight his own battles? And so they rename Gideon, let, let Baal contend with him, and and everyone continues on. I imagine how many 
embarrassing blights in the history of the church could have been avoided if Christians had just read these verses in Scripture and accepted this truth. Uh, you know, it, that, hey, if, if God really is God, can't he fight his battles for him? Can't he take care of people who don't follow him? Can't he be trusted to, to resolve, uh, you know, the, the amount of humanity that might live in rebellion to him? Maybe it's not our job to, uh, to go and fight on God's behalf. But no, you know, we ran off to the Crusades for centuries and killed, you know, millions of people and to, to go and defend God's holy land or to claim back God's holy land. You know, even in more recent times, uh, the Christians spent over 100 years killing each other in Europe in defense of their God. And in the meantime, now when society looks back on history, the credibility of Christian beliefs and Christian institutions are forever stained by this need that we felt to take up arms and to defend God's honor. In that respect, we are no better than these worshipers of Baal in ancient Israel. And I think it betrays the fact that we don't really believe that God is God that we don't really believe that he's truly sovereign or he's truly invincible. We, we don't really believe that God can take care of himself. And if we don't believe that God can take care of himself, how can we ever believe that God could take care of us? Which then points out to perhaps the reason that God's people aren't always so good at listening to him. I went in today reading a passage from John chapter 14. These are some words that Jesus gave to his followers on the night he was betrayed. And I believe that Jesus offered these words as a form of assurance to his followers, knowing that they were walking through, about to walk through some dark times. They're about to lose the face-to-face contact they'd enjoyed with Jesus for the last three years that they'd been together. And it's almost like Jesus wanted them to hear these words so that they would help carry them through Uh, the next season of life. And so, as we read these words today, I I just want to encourage you to hear them uh, as if Jesus were saying them to you and to encourage you uh, to listen to his words and to obey them. He said to them, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. They'll do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. And if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. Gideon is encouraged that he will overcome because the Lord is with him. And Jesus encourages his believers with the truth that he is sending his Holy Spirit to live with them and in them and uh, to be with them forever. Uh, out of that place of connection with the Holy Spirit, he encourages us that we can do even greater things than he did. And in that, too, is, is uh, an encouragement that if we declare we love him, if we say we love him, we will keep his commands. And so uh, we are called to be people who listen to Jesus and live obediently to him and to the revelation that he gives to us and live in the fellowship of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you are with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have sent to live in each of our hearts. I pray that as we go out today and this week to uh, build your kingdom and the world around us, to love others in your name, uh, that you would empower us for the works of service that you've called us to, that you would uh, bring our minds and our hearts into alignment with your will for us, and just draw us closer to you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.